0: This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit lifevestresults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic these are their stories. Welcome back, cardio nerds. We are back in Boston, baby, and we are going to be learning a lot of great vascular medicine from our friends, Dr. Abu Rahman, Abu Moad, and Dr. Lelia Baruz, who are vascular medicine fellows at Boston University. And we are super stoked to meet you today. Team, why don't you introduce yourselves?
1: Thank you so much for having us today. It's a pleasure to be with you on the pod. I'm Abdurrahman Abu Muawad. I went to medical school in Egypt. Then I came to the United States to Mayo Clinic at Rochester, where I did two years of postdoc research fellowship. Then I completed my internal medicine training at University of Missouri, Kansas City. Then I'm here at Boston doing my vascular medicine training. And I'm going to cardiology next year starting in July. And I'm happy to be with you today. Outside of work, I like to play soccer. I also play tennis table and like to hang out with my wife and my two-year-old baby girl.
2: Hi, everyone. My name is Leili Berhus. I am a Bachelor Medicine Fellow at Boston University. I'm originally from Iran and I did my medical school over there and I moved to the States for my IM residency training. And I'm gonna be starting Cardiology Fellowship this July. Outside of work, I enjoy swimming and snowboarding. And now that's the season. I have been starting to snowboard a few times and going for the weekend actually. Very excited about that. This is my first time doing a podcast. First time for both of us, and we're both very excited to be here. And thanks for having us.
0: Well, Abdul, Lili, this is amazing. Great to have you. And while I love the snow as well, I think for my vacation I'm gonna be heading to the beach. I could definitely use some (laughs) tanning, (laughs) tanning with sunscreen, of course. Well, guys, we are in Boston. As we know, Boston is one of our favorite places. What is your favorite place in Boston that we can go to and learn a lot about cardiology slash vascular medicine?
2: Well, we would first recommend coming to Boston University, actually, because we have a pretty great vascular medicine program. And me and Abdul have been enjoying both doing clinical work together. And recently, we have been hanging out a lot in the research lab here at Boston University, where we have the view of downtown Boston. And we stay here late sometimes. We work on our research projects. And today, we actually got some hot chocolate from this amazing place, which is called LA Verdict. I recommend everyone to try it if they ever visit Boston. It's one of my favorite places. And since it's winter here, it feels pretty nice to have some hot chocolate and hot mist.
0: All right, let's do it. Why don't you share a nice case with us? Let's go ahead.
2: So our case is a 34-year-old woman with history of HIV on antiretroviral therapy who presents with persistent left leg swelling Mm -hmm. and a new non-healing left foot ulcer that's been going on for three months. She had no other complaints. Her past medical history is HIV and for medications, she's on Genovia. She works as a cashier, and she's a non smoker So I'm going to pause here and ask my colleague, Abdu about leg ulcers. So what are some things that you look for on exam?
1: That's an excellent question. One of the most important features of leg ulcers to help us to differentiate between venous and arterial origin for the ulcer is the location of the ulcer. If it's on the gator area, and when I say gator area, it means between the mid-calf to the below the medial and lateral mellulite, venous ulcers tend to happen there. And for arterial ulcers, they tend to be at the toe tips or on the lateral malleoli and in between the toes itself. Some other important features that you should look for is if you have a patient with absent pulses or a patient with pale skin, skin loss, the hair, and or the skin itself is shiny and very sand. This tells you that maybe the cause of the ulcer is more of arterial insufficiency versus when you see the leg of the patient and it's have a lot of pigmentation or like with dermatosclerosis, If you see the patient also have very close vein, this all tells you that the origin of the ulcer is from venous insufficiency. So for arterial ulcers, the mechanism behind it is usually the patients will get an injury or a trauma or a small ulcer. And because there is arterial insufficiency, the tissue is not getting enough nutrients, not getting enough oxygen. So the ulcers does not heal and infection starts to come and the tissue may develop gangrene and have really worse outcomes. However, the issue is very different with venous ulcers. With venous ulcers, there's a stasis, there's a sluggish circulation and the capillary pressures are increased, the RPCs comes out and... Some of them ruptures, which actually sometimes to the skin pigmentation from the hemosiderin position around the ulcer. And the main issue with venous ulcers actually is the venous stasis itself, not the shortage of blood supply.
2: Thanks, Abdu, for explaining the differences. For our patient on exam, she had a BMI of 35 on her left leg. She had very close veins in the territory of the great saphenous vein, and we saw hyperpigmentation, edema, and foot ulcer on her left ankle. Her right leg was normal, and she had intact pulses bilaterally. So what are your thoughts about the patient's presentation?
1: So going back to our history, this patient is non-smoker. She is a fairly young lady, and she has no risk factor for atherosclerotic disease. She has no diabetes, no hypertension, no coronary artery disease, no vascular disease. And also, you just mentioned that she had intact pulses. So this would really make arterial insufficiency less likely. However, on the other hand, she is obese, she works at the cashier, she is standing on her legs all day. So it would make me think more about Venus Pulsar.
2: So what do you think are the next steps for diagnosis? That's a really
1: great question. I think the next step for the diagnosis, so this is a unilateral disease in her leg. It's only her left leg and the other leg is normal and pulses are good bilaterally. She has no parapra. No systemic manifestations to indicate vasculitis or systemic disease. I would start with trying to rule out the most common diagnosis like venous thrombosis and venous insufficiency. So I would proceed with venous duplex.
2: So we proceeded with a venous duplex, which showed chronic partially occlusive thrombus in the left common femoral and profunda femoral veins. And we also saw loss of Doppler respiratory variation on her left leg. So, what does this Venus duplex make you
1: think of? The results of the venous duplex are very interesting, as you may be able to see on the website. It looks like from the images that this patient had a remote deep venous thrombosis, as evident by the second vein wall from the scar tissue from the old deep venous thrombosis. And also, if you look to the other image on the podcast website, if you look for the waveform that we obtained by the duplex ultrasound, usually the venous duplex waveforms are phasic, which means that they vary with respiration. So when you take a deep inspiration, your diaphragm goes down, squeezes your abdomen, which reflects onto the waveform by increasing the flow from your lower extremities to your heart. While the opposite happens when you do expire, then your diaphragm goes up. Lower pressure is created in the abdomen, so the flow is enhanced. So you can always see some phases of the blood flow, which increases and decreases with respirations. Usually, when you lose this physicity, this means that there's an obstruction between your diaphragm and your probe, which still does the stenosis or obstruction in between. So how would we apply this clinically? This can suggest for us this patient has proximal obstruction, So we can look more proximal into the venous system to find the lesion.
2: Very good, Abdul. Great explaining, Chen. So as you said, whenever we see that monophasic flow, basically loss of respiratory variation on our venous duplex makes us think that there is a proximal obstruction and you want to do further testing to assess for what's going to be going on further up. So in her case, we proceed with the contrast venography her to assess the veins in the pelvic area, and it showed stenosis at the level of the left common iliac vein and collateral circulation from the left lower extremity to the right lower extremity.
1: What do you think this is?
2: Well, this is suggestive of may syndrome. So classic may syndrome is venous outflow obstruction because of an external compression of the left common iliac vein by the right common iliac artery, which causes venous stasis that can lead to formation of DVT. This is often an underrecognized but treatable cause of DVT. It usually presents with pain and swelling of the left leg with and without the presence of DVT. So you don't always have DVT in these patients. Some of these patients will develop signs of venous insufficiency, such as varicose veins, pigmentations, and venous ulcers. Younger women are at higher risk of developing May-Thurner syndrome compared to men. We do need a high degree of suspicion to investigate patients who come in with unilateral left-sided leg symptoms and venous duplex also that have features of May-Therner syndromes. It's important to remember the risk factors associated with may syndrome. Scoliosis, female sex, use of oral contraceptive, and pregnancy are among a few. So you always have to keep that at the back of your mind that any patient coming in with left leg symptoms of swelling and pain and DVT- this can be something that's going on, so you always have to
1: have it in the back of your eye. Thank you, Lolly. That was really informative.
2: Abdul, how do we diagnose may Thurner's syndrome? Usually,
1: a high degree of suspicion is needed to investigate patients with unilateral left-sided leg symptoms. And sometimes venous doblar features what suggest may Cerner syndrome, like the loss of physiology and loss of respiratory variation on the venous doblar waveforms. Usually, we investigate for Masoner's syndrome with non-invasive imaging studies, like venous duplex. CT and MR venography also have very high sensitivity and specificity. Also, intravascular ultrasound and castor based venography. These are all modalities we can use to diagnose Masoner's syndrome. However, the intravascular ultrasound is the gold standard for the diagnosis. But however, due its invasive nature, usually patients undergo CT or MRI venography to confirm this diagnosis, and they may undergo intravascular ultrasound, and we decided to treat them with endovenous stenting.
2: Thanks, Abdul. So back to our patient, she actually received the venous stent, and she was started on aspirin 81 milligram for six months. So I'm going to ask you, what do you think about the management of May-Therner syndrome?
1: That's a really important question. So usually, the management for Masoner syndrome focuses on addressing the patient's symptoms. For patients with moderate to severe symptoms and significant venous stasis, we usually treat those patients with endovenous stenting rather than conservative management. However, the studies reporting anticoagulation or antiplatelet regimens after venous stenting is not a lot, and we don't really have clear-cut data about it what is the best regimen for antiplatelet or anticoagulation after the venous stent. And also the interventionalist practice is significantly different from center to another, from a country to another regarding their choice for antiplatelet or anticoagulation and also the duration for the treatment afterwards.
0: Well, Lili, so it sounds like this patient received a venous stent and I just noticed the regimen that the patient was placed on afterwards was basically aspirin monotherapy therapy without any second antiplatelet or another anticoagulant. So I'm just curious, is there a lot of variability with venous stents or is there kind of a way that people do it or is aspirin monotherapy just a thing for venous stents when you compare it to other stents?
1: Thank you so much for bringing this up. Actually, few studies specifically address the management of anticoagulation or antiplatelet in patients with venous stents. The duration of anticoagulation or antiplatelet is usually determined by the underlying risk for venous thromboembolic currents and not by the presence of the venous stent itself. There was a study that was done in Europe. It involved 106 interventionalists practicing and placing venous stents, and they were asked through a questionnaire, what is their practice after placing a venous stent for antiplatelets or anticoagulation? And their answers are very variable. 5% of them said they would only use warfarin for six months and then they would use a single antiplatelet agent for 12 months.
2: And 29% of them use low molecular weight heparin for six weeks and then warfarin for six months.
1: And 5% would only use low molecular weight heparin for six weeks.
2: And then 16% said that they're going to use doax for three to six months.
1: And another 9% of them said they would use antiplatelets and low molecular weight happen for 6 weeks. And then they will do, do whack for 6 to 12 months.
2: So I guess what we did with our patient was closer to antiplatelet therapy with aspirin, close kind of to the 16%, right?
1: Yeah, and this tells you that this area really needs a lot of research and to have really cut data for that.
0: Well, thank you guys for answering that. That sounds like treatment is really all over the place. And I'm sure with more trial and more data coming out, more clarity will put a lot of people at ease and kind of help streamline the treatment for patients who receive a venous stent.
1: Yeah. And actually, there is a trial that is really going right now. It's called the c tract Study. It's based here in the United States, where they're treating the patients with anticoagulation and aspirin 81 milligram for six months.
0: All right, so the patient had their veins
1: stented and they've been put on aspirin monotherapy. How did the patient do? So the patient actually did pretty well. We have seen the patient in the clinic for a follow up appointment six weeks later after she received her spina stent and her ulcer has healed and the patient was really satisfied with the outcome of the procedure and she was really very thankful to our team and we were happy this patient felt a lot better after she had a lot of suffering. So, now Lily is going to tell us about another very interesting case of May-Turner syndrome, a very unique case with a rare variant of May-Turner syndrome. Also, the patient's characteristics were very different from our classic patient, and surprisingly, the treatment the patient received was different as well.
2: Thanks, Abdul. Our second case is a 71 year old man with history of hypertension who presented with left lower extremity pain and edema that was going on for a few months. His past medical history, as I mentioned, was high. He only had hypertension and he was taking Lusartan. He underwent left lower extremity venous duplex, which showed a chronic thrombus in the left proximal to distal femoral vein and an acute thrombus in the left popliteal vein. And subsequently he was started on anticoagulation. So during this time, he also complained of having intermittent palpitations, and he completed cardiac event monitor, and he was diagnosed with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, and for that, he goes for pulmonary vein isolation. So it was during the procedure that it was noted that his left common iliac vein was subtotally occluded. After this, he underwent CT venogram, which showed lumbosacral osteophytic compression of the left common iliac vein which is known as the osteophytic bony variant of May-Turner syndrome.
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting case. This is actually very different from the classic May-Turner syndrome, which is usually happen in women at the reproductive age. Look at this patient. The patient is a male and he's in his 70s. Yeah, that's a very rare presentation of May-Turner syndrome. Thank you so much for sharing this case, with us.
2: Yeah, exactly. So this variant, which is pretty rare, as you mentioned, we usually see it in older patients and it happens when you have a prominent vertebral osteophyte that is compressing the iliac vein.
1: And what did you do for this patient?
2: So for this patient, his symptoms were minimal and he had to be on anticoagulation anyways because of his AFib. So we discussed the management with the patient. And eventually, the decision was made to not pursue any interventional options and just to continue with his anticoagulation. Mm -hmm. So I think partly for this patient, specifically, the situation was a little bit unique that he was going to continue taking anticoagulation and his symptoms were very mild. So we didn't pursue any intervention, but that's not always the case. Most of the time, many patients receive some type of intervention to release the area of obstruction.
1: Yeah, it's very important to have a high suspicion index of May Turner syndrome in our differential diagnosis when we actually see a patient with left lower extremity DVT, especially when it's more proximal.
2: And we have to remember that May Turner syndrome is underdiagnosed. overall. It's estimated that May Turner syndrome is the cause of two to five percent of DVTs. However, there have been a retrospective, cadaveric, and radiographic studies that have estimated that the prevalence is much higher at around 14 to 30 percent or so. So, as I mentioned, it is very important to have it in the back of our mind whenever we see a patient coming in with left leg symptoms, having left leg DBT, left leg edema, to just be a consideration and make sure we don't miss the features of Meckel's syndrome on our venous duplex.
0: Thank you so much for sharing this interesting case. So Lele, after starting anticoagulation for this patient, how did the patient do?
2: Patient has been doing very well. His symptoms continue to be very, very minimal. He really doesn't have that much leg swelling and he's tolerating anticoagulation very well. So overall, everything's going pretty good.
0: Abdu, Lele, thank you so much again for presenting these two cases of May-Thurner syndrome. I definitely have learned a lot and I see why you compared and contrasted these two cases. So as we wrap this up, do you have any pearls and takeaways for May Turner syndrome that we, the listeners, should be aware of?
2: So, May syndrome is often an underrecognized but treatable cause of DVT. Most patients who have May Turner anatomy are asymptomatic, and only a minority of patients with the May Turner anatomy present with symptoms such as left leg edema, pain, and DVT. Young women are at higher risk of developing May Turner syndrome compared to men. And we need a high degree of suspicion to investigate patients with unilateral left-sided leg symptoms and venous duplex features of methionine syndrome.
1: The diagnosis is usually made with non-invasive imaging, including venous duplex, CT or MR venography, or more invasive modalities like intravascular ultrasound or castor-based like venography. Treatment usually includes anticoagulation. If a thrombus is present, most patients would receive venous Tenting at the obstructed site to prevent compression of the left common iliac vein and to maintain its patency. Some patients would need cancer-directed thrombosis prior to the stent placement.
0: Abdulele, thanks again for summarizing the really salient points with regards to may thurner syndrome, and I feel better equipped to take care of patients presenting with may Turner syndrome or even may thurner syndrome variants, and it was just a pleasure spending time with you all in Boston today. So thank you, thank you, thank you.
1: Thanks so much for having us today. It has been really a pleasure and we would really love to come back.
2: Yeah, thank you very much for having us. It was a pleasure. We had so much fun.
1: Now for the ECPR segment, we are thrilled to introduce our amazing mentor, Dr. Naomi Hamburg. She is the program director of the vascular medicine for here at Boston Medical Center. She is also the professor of medicine, and she is section chief for the vascular biology at Boston University.
2: I wanted to also add that Dr. Hamburg has been an amazing mentor for both of us, very supportive and very generous. And we continue to learn from her every day, both in clinical vascular medicine as well as research. And we're lucky to have her as our mentor. And with that, we welcome Dr. Hamburg.
3: Hi, Cordia Nerds. This is Naomi Hamburg. I'm so happy to be here along with Lily Bruce and Abdul Rahman Abdul Moad, our two amazing vascular medicine fellows here at Boston University and Boston Medical Center to discuss the cases they presented, which highlight some issues in the diagnosis and management of patients with leg swelling and venous disease. So I'm going to talk about a couple of issues that I think this cases nicely illustrate. One is. How do we think about a patient who comes to us with leg swelling and venous ulcers, especially in the most common cases? And then I'm going to talk more specifically about who do we want to look for more than the usual, and then about the long-term management of patients who have venous compression syndromes, and then a little bit about the intersections of venous and arterial disease that I think are emerging in the literature. So to start with the basic, we see a lot of patients in cardiology whose legs are swollen. We see this with our patients with heart failure, but we also see it in patients who have venous disease, and we can see it overlapping in patients who have venous ulcers. So patients with uh, venous insufficiency, our veins are really responsible for getting the blood back up to the heart. And you could have a number of reasons where you can have venous hypertension, and one of the most common is that you have valve dysfunction in the veins leading to venous hypertension, and this in the most severe cases can lead to venous ulcers, like we saw in the first patient. So when we see a venous ulcer, it's most typically going to be in the calf region, and there's going to be accompanying other signs of venous insufficiency like leg swelling and skin discoloration. The important concepts to think about when you see patients where you think they have a venous ulcer and legs swelling. when you think about the treatment, really these only get better if the edema goes away. So the ulcer forms from the edema and the pressure in the skin leading to vascular insufficiency in the skin, and they only get better when we do compression. So I see a lot of patients where we're good at trying to treat the wound itself, but we are not going to get healing without compression therapy. And this can be a variety of ways to wrap the leg to really put counterpressure to get that swelling out of the leg. So that's the first important common point that we need to make. And then the next is to think about, okay, so we think that the patient has leg swelling from venous insufficiency. Do we think this is just common venous insufficiency related to valve dysfunction? Do we think that this is venous insufficiency in a patient who's had blood clots before and has the valves damaged from post syndrome? Or do we think that there's something more going on? And in these cases, we have two cases where there's something more going on, and that is a venous compression. So another reason that you can end up with high pressure in the vein is if there's some compression of a more central vein that's not letting that vein drain well. So that's just like if you step on a hose, you get back pressure here. If you press on the vein, which are a low pressure system, you can end up with back pressure and legs falling. And so you could have venous compression syndromes in different parts of the body. Here we're focusing on the legs. And one reason for venous compression syndromes is where the artery is actually Compressing the vein as a crossover. And we call that May Thurner. But it's important to realize that there's other reasons that you could have venous compression, such as a patient with a mass that's in the pelvis that's compressing on the vein. So again, you want to think about other reasons for venous insufficiency. If it's one leg, particularly the left leg, like we see in May Thurner, or if it's developing in a patient who's beyond the middle age that didn't have this before that all of a sudden has legs like falling that could be either one leg or both. Okay, so we've thought about venous insufficiency as a cause for legs falling. We're making sure that we're doing compression therapy in a patient that has an ulcer as a way to get them to heal. And then we're thinking beyond the usual in patients presenting with signs and symptoms of venous insufficiency, either of an older age or at a younger age where it's only the one leg, particularly if it's the left leg. So those patients often have this physiology and compression of May Thurner. So then when we have identified a patient who were suspicious for thinking about having a venous compression syndrome, what do we do to find more about it? And that's really because we think these compression syndromes in the legs are typically more proximal in the pelvis. We need to have some imaging of the pelvis. So we're always going to start with some venous imaging of the leg. And there are some indications that we can get on ultrasound that maybe something more proximal is going on, though it's not necessarily going to be definitive, but we can look at the waveforms in the veins that we see on vestibular ultrasound in the legs to see whether or not there's evidence of a nice phasic flow that suggests that the veins more proximally are open or more continuous flow, which is an indication that there's venous compression, but we can't tell necessarily on the ultrasound what's causing that venous compression. So... That requires some more imaging, and we heard in these patients about how there was additional imaging that looked at whether there was venous compression. In one case, venous compression by the artery, and another case of venous compression by an actually bony structure that was pressing on the vein. And typically, those are going to be some kind of CT venogram or a MR venogram to look at the veins and the pelvis. And you saw examples of those nicely in these cases. And then the dilemma is once we found it. What do we do more for the patient? So we've identified a patient who has a venous compression syndrome. Do we need to do more? So one important point that was made is that there are patients who had venous compression who don't have any symptoms about it. So you could have the physiology where the artery is compressing the iliac vein. So you have physiology of Maytherner, but the person's completely asymptomatic. Those patients don't need anything done. But we do see patients, as we saw here, where they may have some symptoms. And so again, we're always going to start with conservative therapy, and that's going to be compression therapy on the leg to treat the edema. But in selected patients, we're going to think about whether they need something more to help with the vein. And that's because with the chronic compression, you can actually have injury to the vein and you can develop webs or strictures in the vein that are going to be difficult to treat, say in a patient who has had a blood clot with either just anticoagulation or in a patient with leg swelling. And leg ulcers, just with compression, you're likely to have that come back over time, even after the leg ulcer heals. So it's in the patients who have evidence of compression, who have clinical symptoms that are not responding well to our conservative treatments that we think about doing something more. And that usually involves an intervention of in with venous stenting. It doesn't do well with just balloon alone, again, because you have that compression. So you need something to provide some counterpressure to the external force that's pushing on that low pressure vein a little bit different in the patients where it's a bone because you don't want to be putting stents necessarily up against a bone that's going to not even allow that stent to expand well. So in selected patients, we're thinking about doing an exam to really look at what's going on with the vein, and that typically is going to involve some intravascular ultrasound. Are there webs? Are there strictures? Is there something that needs to be treated on the inside of the vein? And then consideration of stenting to help keep that vein open so that it's allowing to be draining well to reduce the risk of thrombosis and to treat the chronic swelling in someone's leg. So the next set of questions and the next issue that I think is important to talk about is what about long-term treatment of patients who've had an intervention or made turner like our first patient. And one important distinction about groups of patients is, is this a patient who came in initially with a blood clot or is this a patient that just came in with leg swelling or maybe an ulcer but has not had a blood clot? So in patients that have had blood clots and who go on to have evidence that the reason was that they had made and they go on to have stenting Most of those patients currently were thinking about long-term secondary prevention strategies with lower-dose anticoagulation in any case. So they often are going to end up being on low-dose anticoagulation for prevention of recurrent clots. And I would think about that even in patients who had a venous compression syndrome and was treated. But then there's a group of patients who hadn't had blood clots but had venous stenting for the treatment of a venous compression syndrome. And we really don't have a lot of great information, as was discussed a little bit in the cases, about what to do with these patients. We do know that there's evidence that they can have issues with patency of the vein over time. But the question is, what is the best way to treat them? Is the best way to treat them with anticoagulant therapy? With anticoagulant therapy or are they okay once they have had their venous stenting and they don't need any more therapy after that? It's important to note that in the patients who have not had any prior thrombosis of the vein, their patency rates after having an iliac stent are really high. And so it makes you wonder whether you're really going to get better outcomes in patients if you're adding antiplatelet therapy or anticoagulant therapy. There's a fair number of small retrospective studies in this field, but there's a lack of large randomized trials. So in terms of the current recommendations, There is a recommendation to do a short term of antiplatelet therapy that may be dual antiplatelet therapy. And in the long run, I think it's reasonable to consider different approaches, including using antiplatelet therapy alone or in particular selected patients who you think are at higher risk for thrombosis to consider perhaps using a low-dose anticoagulant strategy. The last piece that I wanted to touch on, since we are vascular medicine physicians and also cardiologists, is that there's a lot of interesting increasing information linking venous disease and arterial disease. So obviously veins are different than arteries, but there are a number of large epidemiologic studies that link cardiovascular risk factors to venous thrombosis and venous disease and interestingly link chronic venous insufficiency the higher risk for subsequent cardiovascular disease events. Some of this may be a higher risk for heart failure, say if you're identifying patients early by finding out that they have leg swelling. But I think it really raises the intriguing possibility that their shared pathophysiology of venous and arterial disease So I encourage you, even as you're taking care of your patients with arterial disease, to look for evidence of venous disease in their legs and think about whether it needs additional treatment and think about it as an additional potential risk stratifier for increased future cardiovascular events, including arterial disease events. And with that, I'd like to thank you for your attention and reiterate the words of our fellows that Boston is an amazing place to train and practice medicine. And there's a lot of other great things here. As we move out of winter and ski season, then we also have great hiking and outdoor things nearby to our city to keep your mind and body activated as we're doing, also learning and taking care of patients. Thank you so much
1: Thanks for tuning in to another Cardi Nerds episode. The audio editing for this episode was performed by me, Akiva Rosenzweig. I'm an intern in the Cardi Nerds Academy house, Thomas, and resident at Cleveland Clinic. Check out the episode page for show notes and references. If you found this episode or the show informative, please consider subscribing to Cardi Nerds on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a review. It really helps us spread the word and further our goal to democratize cardiovascular education. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed on our show and site do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. All Carter Nerd's content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by Carter Nerd's. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations and explorations in our upcoming episodes. And now, it's time to make like an S2 and split. Beep. Beep.